So please turn with me to Acts 19. We will be looking at the first 10 verses of Acts 19. I had originally thought about doing the first 20, but there's just too much there for us to do that. So we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 this week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with the text. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, pray that you would open it up to us in such a way that infants could understand, because in many ways, Lord, we come to you like that, not only in our lack of understanding, but also in our obstinance. And so, Lord, we need you to not only give us understanding, but to soften our hearts that we might hear and read and understand your word, that we would be convicted of our sin, that we would be led in the truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as I read this passage this week, it made me think of a story that I'd heard about uh, World War II. And in World War II, of course, August of 1945 is when the war ended. Japanese armies surrendered to the Allied forces, ending the war. came at great cost, approximately 70 million deaths over the course of about 10 years, both civilian and military deaths. About 4% of the world's population died in this world, in this war. Pretty incredible. The final blow, of course, was the two atomic bombs dropped on the Japanese mainland, killing tens of thousands, destroying two historic cities. Just a horrible thing. It took a, took the world really a long time to heal from this war, maybe as much as 50 years, some would say, even longer. Some, in some places it's still healing. For one soldier that I heard about, in particular, it took him almost 30 years to even surrender. A man by the name of Hiro Inoda, or Onoda, was a Japanese officer. He had been newly commissioned in February of 1945, and he was sent to the island of Lubang, which is a Philippine island at the time, had been occupied by Japanese forces. And he was given a strict order, as were all Japanese soldiers in that time, do not surrender and do not take your own life. Fight until the very end. When the Japanese army did finally surrender the Philippines, he and three of his friends refused to surrender. And they stayed in the mountains. And over the next 30 years... They plundered local farmers and fishermen. They got in shootouts with local police and even some of just the villagers resulting in the deaths ultimately of three of his friends, but he persisted. He was the sole survivor after multiple attempts to convince him that the war was over and the world had moved on. He was not up to their tricks, and he thought it was all a big ruse to get him to come out of hiding and surrender his post, so he kept fighting until finally... One of his old officers heard about him and went and paid him a visit to this island and ordered him to surrender. And like a good soldier, he followed orders and he surrendered finally in 1974. And he lived until 2014, a very stubborn man. Why wouldn't he surrender? He was committed to his cause. He refused to admit defeat. No matter what, he thought that those who were trying to help him even were really just trying to trick him. They weren't trying to help him at all. The war for him had kept going on, had never ended. All those years of peace 
were actually years of turmoil for him. Imagine all the peace and prosperity, even of his own nation during that time, which flourished in many ways after the war. He missed out because he thought the world was still at war. In our text today, Paul is going to meet a few folks who had missed a really big announcement as well. They were the followers of John the Baptist. They hadn't yet heard the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul will continue to minister in the synagogue and run into others who were stubborn and who had continued in their unbelief, as we'll read in the text. We're going to look at how Paul addressed this as well as how, of course, they're very similar to us in our own stubbornness. We oftentimes miss the memo. We think that we're still at war. We'll talk about that. As we do that, we'll consider two ideas from the text, the gospel first of John the Baptist and then the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with that, let's look at the text, Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 1. Let's stand together as we read from God's holy word. Acts 19, starting at verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he encountered in the synagogue for three months, spoke, or, and he entered the synagogue for and for three months spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of god but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief speaking evil of the way before the congregation he withdrew from them and took his took the disciples with him reasoning daily in the hall of tyrannus this continued for two years so that all the residents of asia heard the word of the lord both jews and greeks Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So Todd read from Luke chapter 3 this morning. I want to also read from Luke chapter 3. So turn there with me as we set up our text this morning. Luke chapter 3. Here we have John the Baptist preaching to the Pharisees, to others. And I'm going to read the first nine verses in order to help us kind of understand what's going on. We heard about this baptism of John. So Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iteria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. 
for the forgiveness of sins. That is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one in the wilderness or crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways. And all the flesh shall see salvation of God. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, it's a great, great greeting from John, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now even the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So here we get the story of John the Baptist. Luke gives us lots of names and historical places. And it's fascinating that he was such a thorough historian. But we get where John's coming from. And here he is out in the wilderness proclaiming the name of the Lord. Jesus quotes from Isaiah 40 when he refers to John. John here quotes from Isaiah 40 referring to himself. And what does Isaiah 40 tell us that his job is? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight so that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What is in the way of that then? Why do we need to make the path straight and lay the high things low and bring the low things up? What's in the way? Our sin. And for the Jewish nation, what was the sin? Well, he addressed it. This meant for them, they had to admit that simply being Jewish wasn't enough. Jews would baptize Gentiles. This was a common thing that they did. Gentile converts, they would come into the Jewish faith. The Jews would baptize them. And this this baptism symbolized a cleansing so that the taint of not being Jew would be washed away. And then at this point, them being clean from from the fact that they were Gentiles, they could serve God fully. There's a problem with that, of course. Being Jew doesn't really save you from anything. The idea that a Jewish person needed a Savior was a major obstacle to be overcome in Jesus' day and would continue to be an obstacle that Peter would have to overcome in his preaching after Jesus was resurrected and would be an obstacle for Paul and his preaching as we've read, as we've studied almost every single week since we started the book of Acts, have we not? We've seen this sort of Jewish opposition. The Jews did not want to hear about a Savior unless that Savior came riding into town on a white horse with 50,000 chariots at his back. That's the only Savior they wanted to hear about. They didn't want to hear about a carpenter's son who was born and died in their place. So imagine the situation. John is in the wilderness. He looks kind of strange. He's out there preaching in this wilderness. And the wilderness is a real term to the Jewish people. No self-respecting Jew would have gone out to the wilderness to do business with God. You go to the temple to do business with God. But he was out in the wilderness calling people to baptism. And he was baptizing Jews, not Gentiles. Of course, he probably was baptizing Gentiles. But the big thing was that he was baptizing Jews so that they could prepare their hearts for the coming Savior. 
who would save his people from their sins. And his people were not only the Jews, but they were the Gentiles as well. And those Gentiles would have an equal place at the table with the Jews. So for a Jewish person to go into the wilderness, we have to understand what's going on here, and receive the baptism of John was for them to say, okay, I'm ready. I understand that I need a Savior even though I'm Jewish. I need a Savior because I'm a sinner. has nothing to do with me being Jewish or not Jewish. I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. That baptism said that. John's baptism did something that Jesus would later come to fulfill. It prepared the hearts for his arrival. Even John says that. If you continue to study, you'll see that John says, Hey, at this point he's here. I must decrease. He must increase. Once Jesus came, they needed only to say what? What did Jesus come to preach? Repent and believe. They need only say, I repent. I believe. I repent of my notions of self-reliance. And I believe that Jesus is the Savior to come. That is, what did Jesus say? John chapter 6. This is the work of God, that you believe in the one that he has sent. And so for the Jewish people... That was hard. So when Paul runs into these followers of John, they were still looking for that. John the Baptist had followers many, many years after John was was killed. Many years, even into the second century. They were baptized into John. They had completely missed the idea that Jesus came and died and was resurrected for his people. Belief in that. That Being baptized into that idea is what they were missing. And that brings us to me to the first point, the baptism of John. It's back in Acts 19, verses 1 through 4. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So here's Paul coming back to Ephesus. Remember, he didn't know if he would, but here he is. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. So here, Paul gives us a great summary of what we just looked at in Luke chapter 3. There's a lot of debate concerning the what is the meaning of John's baptism and people have written books on it and so forth and especially those who think that baptism is a requirement somehow for salvation. John's baptism is of particular importance. When asked by someone, what do you think the baptism of John means? Just take them here to Acts chapter 19 and read that. Paul tells us exactly what John's baptism means and why he was baptizing men and women to prepare the way of the Lord, the baptism of repentance. Another quick thing here, and we can spend more time on this in Sunday school. The followers of John had not even heard of the Spirit when they were baptized. Paul laid his hands on them and we see the Spirit of the Lord coming on them, the third person of the Trinity. All of a sudden, what was going on? They were speaking in tongues. Remember, this is not the first time that we've heard this, right? Back at Pentecost, 
Todd read from the first bit of that this morning. They received, or Jesus said there in in Acts chapter 1, you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you. That was going to happen. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. We've seen that, right? They've been witnesses in Jerusalem. They've been witnesses in all Judea. They've gone to Samaria and they were witnesses there. And now, as far as they're concerned, they're at the very ends of the earth. And they're witnesses there exactly just like Jesus said they would do. This is what we would expect to see in this book that is about the early mission of the church. That the message of Christ is going out. That the Spirit is coming upon all of those who believe. And what are they being empowered to do? The work that Christ called them to, to be witnesses, of course. And so, what are they doing? They're speaking in the t- in tongues, which we saw in Acts chapter 2, that these tongues were real languages, that others standing around, when these disciples were preached, were, were speaking, anyone present, no matter what country they were from, could have understood and heard the message, which is a good thing. They were being empowered to do the work of ministry. This was a, been a necessary tool in a world that was getting much smaller in those days. Think about what Rome did for civilization. They built roads. They made pace, They made things safe for just normal passage. It was be, the world was beginning to get smaller. Languages and cultures were all coming together in these big centers like Ephesus. And so to be able to speak so that everyone could hear you would have been a very good tool in those days. This is no way saying that we must speak in tongues to demonstrate the Spirit's power in our lives. In no way. What this is saying is that the Spirit comes upon those who place their belief in Jesus Christ. Those who repent and believe. It in no way implies also that we must be baptized into Jesus' name only. Which is, you know, it says here in verse, uh, in verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Some people take that and they say, well, look, we need to be baptized in the name of Jesus only. There's no such thing as the Trinity. And they kind of go off the rails and become non-Christians with their uh, crazy beliefs. What's, why would Luke even bring that out. Well, he's contrasting the baptism of John there. The baptism of John has no merit. It's Jesus Christ alone that has merit. They were being brought into this covenant relationship that Jesus Christ had fulfilled with His death, burial, and resurrection. And through whom we and they receive all the benefits of that covenant. And so again, this baptism of the Spirit, it just shows that the promises of God are being bestowed upon the believers of the, in the church, are being fulfilled through the work of Christ Jesus, has nothing to do with necessary um, outpourings of our faith or anything. You know, sometimes you'll hear this idea of, well, have you received the Holy Spirit? And you say, well, I believe. And no, have you, have you received? Have you got the Spirit yet? All believers, if you place your trust in Jesus Christ, have the Spirit of God within them. You do not need to have any outward manifestation of that so that the world may see. Any sort of thing like that quickly leads to something else 
being our salvation rather than the Lord Jesus Christ alone, which directly goes against what Paul tells these men. So we need to be careful with that. Again, we could go into a whole lot of depth here. Um, So let me encourage you, if you have questions, write them down. We'll talk about them in Sunday school. I want to focus instead, look with me at verses 8 and 9. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So, of course, Paul enters the synagogue. That's what he did everywhere he went. Verse 9, But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took his disciples with them. And they reasoned in this the hall of Tyrannus. It was probably some owner of a lecture hall someplace. Paul was in the synagogue there for a few months, and they became stubborn, because that's what people do, right? We are stubborn people. Why? Because they continued in their unbelief, even though Paul was giving them the plain truth, as we've seen him do so many times before, they continued to be stubborn in that. Remember what John said in Luke 3 when he saw the people coming to be baptized. He said, you brood of vipers. What was his reason for calling them that? It's a pretty, uh, pretty outrageous insult. I'm assuming uh, that was that would have been a bad thing to be called in those days. Do not say to yourself, "We have Abraham as our father," as if that somehow earns you something before God. Why? What did John say? And I love this. And Jesus says this later. God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these very stones. If you think that being Abraham's child is a thing, look, God can just make these rocks become children of Abraham. That's nothing special at all. Reminds me even in Exodus 32. It's a familiar story to us. The children of Israel had been acquainted with the works of God up to this point. They had seen the plagues in Egypt and seen the power of God deliver them from Egypt's hand. They saw the Red Sea stand on its end and the Lord crushed the enemy of his people, delivering them, bringing water from a rock, making food to appear on the ground, all of this. And Moses goes up to speak with God to deliver the law and they get impatient. And so they make a God out of the gold that they stole from Egypt and fashioned it into a calf. And we're dancing around it. And what did God say to Moses when he saw this? The the people are a stiff-necked people. Stubborn. I'll consume them and make a nation out of you, he told Moses. I'll just start over if I have to. I can make sons of Abraham from the stones. If you think God needs us because we are somehow more faithful and more reliable, He doesn't. He doesn't need our piety. He can create pious people from nothing. He doesn't need that. What does He desire from us? He desires our surrender. That we are no longer fighting for our own righteousness, but instead we have surrendered it to Him. Why do we continue? To fight a battle that has already been won. Why do we fight against an enemy that has already lost? Why are we stubborn? Why do we continue in our unbelief that Paul is battling here in the synagogue as he's battled all the way through the book? 
And how do we do this? Of course, we don't say things like, yeah, I think my righteousness is good enough. We would never say anything like that because we attempt to be orthodox. But we do say, well, I've never said a single bad word in my life. I don't know how people don't remain pure before marriage. I did it. I mean, what's wrong with those people? If you don't think you'd be one dancing around the golden calf, you're probably one of those people that says, I can't believe that person goes to church. That's your golden calf. You're not dancing around a calf. You're just dancing around your own righteousness, which happens to be an idol that's shaped like a dirty Band-Aid. How can you avoid this? How can we keep from being stubborn and stuck in this type of unbelief? That brings us to the last point, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verses 9 and 10. But again, they become stubborn in their unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So he withdrew from them and took his disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So notice Paul was in the synagogue for a long time until he was finally driven out, which was his normal because he was preaching the gospel. The stubbornness of the people drove him out. He spoke in this lecture hall uh, for probably two years. So much so, so fruitful was his ministry that all the people of Asia heard the message. Now remember, Asia was the western part of Turkey in these days, not this giant continent that we see today. Through his ministry, through his disciples going out and following the commission of our Lord Jesus, people heard the gospel. The outreach of his disciples doing this. Churches like the ones in Colossae, Laodicea. Hierapolis sprung up during this time. Pretty incredible, the ministry that Paul had from this little place there in Ephesus. And what was Paul's message? Of course, it was the clear message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same message spoken to the disciples of John when he met them on the road. The same message that he's been preaching throughout his ministry. The unbelief of the people didn't stop him. So how do we avoid this kind of hardening of heart? This kind of stubbornness that can easily become or come upon unbelievers very easily. I think there's a few things that we need to make sure that we're doing. First and foremost, we need to make sure that we are acquainting ourselves with the true gospel throughout the scriptures. When people are led astray toward idols, it becomes or it happens when they take their eyes off the Savior. In the wilderness, they thought God had forgotten them. The people of Israel out in the wilderness, they were like, well, apparently Moses isn't coming back. God has forgotten us. And so they crafted an idol to serve them. We don't do that anymore. We don't craft little idols like physical things to serve us. But we create other things to save us, money, relationships, prestige, maybe even our own Christian practice. Look at me. Look how good at this stuff I am. Better than you. And all of a sudden we have these little rankings that we place in order to make our own righteousness stand above others. The true gospel of Jesus Christ causes us to surrender to him any notions that our own righteousness can somehow do anything for us. The false gospel would have us believe that we're still at war. 
we still need to earn somehow favor with God. And that war needs to be won. That we can do that. Rather than hear and accept the gospel like the disciples of John did here. We're stubborn. We're hard-hearted. We hear the gospel and think, well, that's not for me anymore. I've kind of moved past that in my walk with Christ. That's the simple faith. Some people even want to use scriptural metaphors to say that's the milk of God's word. I'm really looking for the important stuff, the meat of the faith now. And then they go off and they decide what that is. And that's how heresy starts every single time. Uh, when someone thinking they found the real truth of Scripture rather than the plain and easy things. Brothers and sisters, the plain and easy gospel is what we'll battle with for the rest of our lives. Understanding that plain truth is what we continue to struggle with. We must stick to the plain truth of Scripture, the plain teachings of the gospel. When it feels like we're fighting a battle, stop. Give it to Jesus. What did he say? In Matthew 11, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me if you are heavy laden. This is about the cares of this world, sure. But more importantly, it's about laying our vain attempts aside to earn merit and surrender ourselves completely at the feet of the real victor, Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you in this pursuit of hearing the gospel and learning the true gospel. Read good books. Of course, reading the Bible is very important. Absolutely, 100%. Read books that talk about the Bible by people who have been reading it longer than we've been alive. It's a good thing. Listen to people teach and preach the gospel. If you want to know who to read and who to listen to, let me know. I'll keep an endless supply going your way. There's so much good out there. We have to keep the gospel directly in front of us at all times or we will be easily convinced when some other truth stumbles our way. Or we won't be convinced when someone tells us the war is over, Jesus has won. We no longer have to fight over our righteousness any longer. Second, we have to realize that this is not about us. We are just as capable as falling into unbelief as any person if you think for a moment that yeah this is really just about other people i feel sorry for the people who struggle with the gospel you need to go look in the mirror in fact every single sin that we commit is founded upon the idea that we know better than god knows we know better we think we are better we do better than him we should be him every single sin is founded upon those ideas our way not his way When we look at others and think, me good, them bad, we fall right into that trap. We should be thinking, Jesus good. Period. End of discussion. When someone in the church is struggling, that's what we tell them. We tell them how good Jesus is. We keep telling them that. That's the message they need to hear. When someone is living in sin, what do we tell them? Jesus is the good one. You're not. Believe in Jesus. We can say that because we can easily, hopefully, say the next sentence. I'm bad too. I need Jesus also. So to wrap this up, let us be people who believe wholeheartedly that the war is over. 
Jesus is one. Those disciples of John needed only to hear the name of Jesus, that he had come and he had died and he had been resurrected. And what did they do? They believed they were baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. They received the Holy Spirit. They began the work. Let us follow their lead. Not be like the Jews in the synagogue, stubborn and unbelieving. Let us be a people who bring to the world a sweet aroma of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who calls out to those who are heavy laden and offers them rest. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we are a stiff-necked people, stubborn, and we continue in our unbelief. Lord, we pray that you would help our unbelief. Call us to yourself. Deliver us from our need, from our own personal righteousness, and help us to rely upon your righteousness alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.